Five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea. Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of Five-Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. You're listening to Mark Power's Waterford History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of my Waterford History Podcast. Um, this week's episode features an interview with Professor Gary Sheffield. and uh, He featured uh, in the documentary about the First World War. It's just gone out in the last two episodes. Uh, and this is a 40-minute interview with him, pretty wide-ranging on issues relating to the First World War. So it's not particularly local. There is some mention of Ireland in it. But, um, but really it's looking at the broader strategic and military significance of the battles that Waterford soldiers might have been likely to have been involved in during the First World War. War. Um, I was delighted to get a chance to speak to him. This interview would have been recorded in 2006. But uh, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to him was because he is uh, someone who takes a modern perspective on the First World War battles, someone who doesn't subscribe entirely to the lines led by donkeys cliches, and someone who in the past has defended uh, Field Marshal Haig. Now, you know, that's with a pinch of salt. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's not a cheerleader for Haig. He's not a cheerleader for First World War tactics, but just has a, a, a more open-minded approach to it and trying to look beyond, as I said, some of those cliches about the First World War being futile and, and that kind of stuff. So um, I was very interested to speak to him about the uh, First World War and have him on the documentary. And uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, I think that this uh, is a really interesting uh, interview and, uh, as I said, very wide-ranging. So as I said, this is one of those interviews that uh, was sitting around in the locker and I always felt that history people in particular would want to hear it. So this is a full 40 minutes uh, Hope you enjoy it, and there'll be a few more coming in the next couple of weeks. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to Mark Power's Waterford History Podcast. But the first question I want to ask you there, because I wanted to kind of, um, I suppose, put a certain amount of emphasis on the numbers of Irish that were in, that was in the Victorian mm-hmm. Army. And, uh, and I suppose with that in mind, what kind of army was the BEF in, in 1914? How did it differ from its continental counterparts? Mm. Well, in 1914, the British Army was a volunteer force. It's been described as being uh, having been raised by the conscription of hunger. In other words, people joined up because they couldn't get a job doing anything else. But unless the, the, the French army, the German army, the Russian army, all of these armies were recruited by conscription. And the British army was actually something that was raised from, from volunteers. There were some territorials and part-time volunteer soldiers as well, but this was a, a very different force from the Continentals, not least because it was much smaller. And uh, that would have had um, an impact, were it not, on the actual, in, in the way it fought and stuff. For, for example, a, a British soldier might have been more familiar with the use of his rifle than maybe his counterpart. Would that be fair to say? I think the British Army actually had more combat experience than any other army in the world at that time, any other army in Europe anyway, because actually they were fighting all over the globe in northwest frontier of India. The Boer War, of course, had been fought just 15 years before. Trouble was, it was they were training, they were practising a very different sort of war to the one they actually came up against in 1914. So it's questionable how much of advantage it really gave them. Um, the, just so I, I mentioned here in, in the questions, um, I suppose it kind of preface a little bit, the, the, the local kind of county regiment, if you like, for area is the Wild Irish Regiment. Mm. It takes in Waterford, Rights, Kenny, I know you could be from anywhere, but, but those are the general recruiting um, areas. 
Um, and uh, the, the, on reading um, uh, Anthony Farrah Hockley's book on the, on the on First Deep, um, I was struck by the fact that the, the, the first regiment to be wiped out, basically, yeah. a lot of them were. The first one was was was, was our local one at Lapilly. How close did the BF come to annihilation in, in October? Just how, how close one the thing was it? Oh, the BEF took extremely heavy casualties. I mean, not just in the, the fighting around Ypres in October, November 1914, but really from the very beginning of the campaign with, with the, the, the fighting around Mons. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say that the old BEF, in all intents and purposes, actually failed, no longer existed by the end of 1914 because it's taken such enormous casualties. The reinforcements that were coming out tended to be pre-war reservists, sometimes not of the same quality as the, the as the, the other soldiers, not least because they were older or they hadn't had as much training or they weren't as fit. So the British Army by, say, January 1915 was pretty much a shadow of, a, of, of its former self as a result of the, the very heavy fighting in this period. And uh, the, if, if we look at, at First Deep and, and I suppose regiments like the Royal Irish breaking themselves, I mean, it was uh, it, was, it was, was, was it a David and Goliath struggle? Was it these kind of small uh, plucky old sweats who are, who are basically you know, holding off the, the, the might of an industrial German force? It's certainly true to say that the British were horribly outnumbered, but of course they were fighting next door to the French. But the British came very, very close to being defeated at the, the first Battle of Ypres in end of October, November 1914, really because they almost ran out of men. In fact, one of the lessons that Douglas Haig took from this battle, because he was the commander of the, of the British forces on the ground, was you should never, you should never give up throwing attacks forward because he was well aware if the Germans had persisted with their attacks around Ypres, the, the British army probably would have been beaten simply because they would have run out of men to fill the gaps. Now, whether that was a, a good lesson or a bad lesson for him to learn is another matter, but it's a lesson he certainly did take away. Um, if you just want to move away from the uh, the Western Front there um, momentarily, um, uh, in, in the programme we're making, we've, we've got quite a few letters from um, Gallipoli, and I, I often wonder, is that because there was a particular fascination, <coughs> fascination with Gallipoli, and, and, mm. and, and that posterity has given us this fascination because of the, 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 the failure and all the rest of it, but um, how do you explain yourself the, the failure of the, of the Gallipoli campaign? Well, I think the Gallipoli campaign was never likely to succeed. I mean, some historians, and certainly Winston Churchill, argued that this was the great missed opportunity for the First World War. I, I, I don't buy that, frankly, simply because they were being asked to do too much, to ask the Navy to force its way through the Dardanelles, the army to land on the Gallipoli Peninsula and, and clear the, the coastal defences, which is what the Gallipoli campaign was intended to do, and then for this force to go to the Turkish capital, Constantinople, and force into surrender well it's I think it's utterly unrealistic and those people who get very carried away about the near success of the Gallipoli operation I think falling to a very large degree for, for Churchill's spin on events to put after the war the failure of the actual campaign itself I think can be explained fairly simply that what they were attempting to do on the 25th of April 1915 was to carry out the first ever opposed amphibious landing in history, opposed that is by troops armed with modern weapons and a relatively small number of Turks armed with modern rifles and a very few machine guns held up much larger uh, numbers of British and Anzac forces. Now that's actually 
partly a problem of the, the fact that the armies at the time were relatively untrained, they hadn't actually come up with effective tactics. It's also simply a matter, I think, you look at mathematics of the number of, of bullets that could be produced by a relatively small number of, of defenders against soldiers who are attacking without any cover, coming off the boats, coming off the River Clyde, and so on. Uh, and, and certainly, I just want to kind of, I suppose, uh, draw attention to, to the River Clyde as well, because um, because there were so many Irish guys there, um, and uh, as I said to you, the, the Royal Irish Regiment was kind of the local regiment there, but a lot of guys from Waterloo would have ended up in the Munster Fusiliers um, as well. Um, they were basically, you know, when you consider the kind of um, uh, technological innovations that were there 30 years later in Almdida, mm. yet they were still slaughtered. I mean, would it be fair to say the most of these years coming off the river had no chance? I had very little. I, uh, frankly, I think that, yes, the, the the troops attacking off the River Clyde, and for that matter, off of the the boats of the, the other beaches as well, had very little chance unless the defenders' fire was suppressed, which means basically that sufficient artillery is fired at them either to kill them or to disable them or simply to make them stop firing. And if you don't achieve that, then you're not going to do you're not going to be very successful in any form of warfare in under conditions of industrial warfare in the 20th century. I mean, the River Clyde actually was a very clever idea, and, they, and it was the right idea in many ways. Unfortunately, we're still in, very much in the experimental stage, and the experiments simply went horribly wrong. It's, it's worth bearing in mind what was happening just a few months later when there were the secondary landings up at Suvla Bay uh, in early August 1915 when they were much more successful, partly because of surprise and partly because they had things, effectively purpose-built landing craft were used instead of this horribly improvised effort of, of the beginning of April. So I, I think that the... Um, the soldiers who attacked on the 25th of April 1915, for the most part, stood very little chance, certainly at V Beach and at W Beach. Um, one of the things um, that, 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 that I've been struck by um, in reading over some of the, uh, the accounts and so on of, of, of V Beach is that there tends to be um, this kind of defined stuff, well, at least we got ashore, you know, which is, which is, which is great, except for that wasn't the reason they were sent there. Um, to what extent were the landings at, at V Beach and like the River Clyde and you had like this kind of idea of the wooden horse and also Lancashire Landing in these places as well, and Anzac, of course. I mean, to what extent do you think that the, the, the mythology helped to brush over the, the, the abject failure of the campaign? I think there was a degree of satisfaction with what was achieved on the grounds of, okay, we may not have won the battle, may not have achieved our aims, but at least we fought very well. And that's, if you like, that's redolent of a very sort of British amateurism of that part of the war. And it doesn't really compensate for the fact that a lot of lives were lost in a failed uh, venture. Of course, we shouldn't forget that the attack happening where it did uh, at the Dardanelles is, of course, redolent of the great um, tales of the ancient ancient Greeks and the wooden horse of Troy and the rest of it. And this was a classically trained generation, or at least the, sort of the officer classes were. And I think there was a, there was a great sense of them and engaging in a, in, a, in, a, in a heroic type of activity. And this was something which has been mythologised since. And again, I would suggest that Winston Churchill, who was one of the originators of the whole operation, and certainly one of the great myth-makers of the operation after the war, is 
to a large degree responsible for this ripping away all the romanticism um, the balance sheet for the Gallipoli campaign actually is is not very good from the Allied point of view a large number of troops were committed they took very heavy casualties they did not ab achieve their objectives in fact Gallipoli is one of the few clear-cut defeats suffered by the British by the British Empire in the First World War um, I just wanted to move them back now to um, the uh, Western Front. Again, there's been a lot of uh, emphasis, I suppose, at home on uh, another episode in the war, which is the first use of gas at Ypres, because, again, the, the Royal Irish Regiment suffered uh, very heavily there. Um, how much of a shock was this introduction of gas warfare in, in, in April 1915? I think we need to put the introduction of gas into context, because the First World War was a war in which there were lots of technological innovations. Gas was one among many, but gas was seen as particularly shocking. And this says something about the psyche of human beings. Uh, one might argue it's no more shocking to be killed by high explosive than it is to be gas. But unless people do tend to gas, see gas as being something as morally reprehensible as opposed to merely vicious and destructive. But for gas itself, the... British troops, uh, the Allied troops, because of course it was actually French Algerian division who took the bulk of the, of the first attack, were not terribly well prepared. But actually anti-gas measures came into place surprisingly quickly after that. And by the time the British themselves were, were using gas at, at Luce in September 1915, so just, just a few months later, actually the anti-gas preparations were quite effective. Um, the problem is that gas... Although a terrible weapon, if you're caught in it without a respirator, without a gas mask, actually is something in the First World War that you could relatively easily um, take measures against. And so gas was never decisive. It was simply one more thing which made the life of the soldier on the front line ghastly. So by the end of the war, by 1918, if an area was particularly heavily gassed, uh, gas shells were used by that stage, then it was pretty certain the enemy was not going to attack there because they were simply saturating an area with gas to deny it rather than actually attack through it because of course attackers have to wear their gas masks as much as defenders do and once you put a gas mask on your efficiency your effectiveness is greatly reduced another thing just just the caliber of troops that were coming into the british army in 1915 as opposed to mm. the new armies in 1916 um, uh, the youngest soldier to die in the war is reputed to be uh, a fellow called John Condon of Waterford. Now, I, I know that um, there's some controversy with that, and, and uh, for, for the sake of keeping everyone happy in Waterford, I'm not going to touch it. But um, <laughs> was there a lot of people in the British Army in 1915, particularly, that had large numbers of people that were too young or too old to, yeah. to, to fight? Because yeah. it, it comes up in Robert Graves' book as well, and I just wonder, is there, yeah. is there an issue there? Well... I think it's fair to say that in the First World War, uh, if you approached a recruiting sergeant and you looked old enough to fight, the recruiting sergeant probably wasn't going to ask you too many questions or ask to see your birth certificate. And there are all sorts of stories, some no doubt apocryphal, about boys turning up to a recruiting sergeant and the sergeant saying, how old are you? And they say, well, I'm 16. So, well, go and walk around the back and you'll be 18 by the time you come come back again so there, there were a number of underage and, and, and a number of overage men serving in the army the the reason for this i think or one of the reasons for this is that the army was hastily improvised in 1914 and 15 it was massively expanded over a very short period of time and the sort of rough rough and ready quality control checks 
that were in place before 1914, which were none too rigorous, it must be said, mostly went out of the window. It was only when people started to get into training or into the front line, when if you were simply physically not fit enough to take it, that these people started to be, to be weeded out, generally speaking. But, you know, a young, strong 15-year-old um, could quite easily pass for a soldier a few years older, and if he did his duty, on the whole, they would just be, be left to it, left to get on with it. Okay, um, I just want to uh, move on now to um, um, the Battle of, of, of the Somme. Um, the, the 16th Division, and that does it again, Redmond had heavy involved in that, and a lot of the people from kind of his kind of area in Waterford were, would have ended up in the, in the, in the 6th Battalion of the, the Royal Irish Regiment and various other battalions. But it, it engaged later in the battle at Kinchin uh, mm. um, I think, mm-hmm. in, in 19, September uh, 1916. So I suppose as opposed to looking at the, the Somme on, from the point of view of the first day, which is mm-hmm. what everybody generally remembers, what kind of battle was it by September and, mm-hmm. um, and was the British Army achieving any success mm-hmm. at that stage? Okay. Well, the Battle of the Somme is remembered for the first day, uh, which of course is, a, is, a, is an attack on a broad front of about 13 miles for the British, uh, with the French attacking to the south. From the end of the 1st of July to the 15th of September 1916, which is the next major push, a multi-divisional attack on, on, on a broad broad front, the Somme broke down to a number of much smaller, although incredibly vicious and bloody battles, which were not terribly well connected. It's not what military historians would, would describe as, uh, as, as a stitched-together battle. And... The main area in which these battles were being fought was on the southern part of the battlefield, the British part of the battlefield, which is where some success had been gained on the 1st of July. So the 16th Irish Division was one of a number of divisions that was thrown into the fighting in August and September 1916, inching their way towards the objectives, basically which was a a good start line for the attack of the 15th of September. And because I, I was I was interested to, to, to read when I was looking up some stuff on Genshin Gilmore that, that they were the two kind of attacks initially before the, the first um, tank attack. So That's right, yeah. And did that change the, yeah, the nature yeah. of the battle again? Yeah, yeah. The, the role of the 16th Division was what has been described as line-shortening attacks or line-straightening the attacks. The idea is that you would have a series of of attacks towards the German position in order to try and get as straight a line as you could for the attack to begin from. Now, this is important because gunnery is still relatively rudimentary in 1916, and the gunners find it much easier to... Uh, shoot on or fire from a straight line they do something that's uh, more of a sort of wiggly line on on a map and these attacks tend to be very bloody and it was not always evident to the soldiers on the ground why they were undertaking them why it was important to capture Guillemot or Vinci or whatever it happens to be actually standing back from it you can actually see from the general's point of view these attacks did make some sense but there's a big question mark about them whether there were too many of these small-scale attacks whether they couldn't have been better conducted had they used more troops to attack the objectives and certainly there's a sense that this isn't really one big joined up battle it's a whole series of small battles which aren't really very well connected i don't think it's 
the finest hour of British generalship in the First World War by any means. Um, moving on to the to the following year, um, could you just explain to us the, the reason for the, I suppose the most controversial battle really of the, of the First World War, the Third Battle of Ypres? What was the reason for for that okay. uh, offensive to be undertaken? I think we've got to bear in mind in the spring of 1917 there were some pluses and minuses on the Allied side. There were some big minuses. The French, of course, had launched a major attack in April 1917 which had not been very successful and had ended with large-scale mutinies among the French army. And the French army was, all intents and purposes, wrecked as an offensive instrument for the rest of 1917. On the other side, however, the, the British, uh, or British Empire troops, I should say, actually had done reasonably well by this stage. Uh, at the Battle of Arras, in, beginning on the 9th of April 1917, Vimy Ridge had been captured by the Canadian Corps. Uh, British divisions had advanced as much as three and a half miles into the German trenches, which is the largest single advance in trench warfare at that time. And at the Battle of Messines, uh, in June 1917, in which, of course, the, uh, the 16th Irish and the 36th Ulster Division fought side by side, that was another very successful, albeit limited, um, short-range, if you like, attack. And so Douglas Haig, the British commander, could see, or at least he thought he could saw, saw that there was a, a, a good opportunity if the Allies kept on attacking to make some real progress against the Germans. He's even talking in terms of maybe forcing the Germans to some sort of peace on Allied terms by the end of 1917. He's also aware of the fragile state of the French army, and he thinks it's necessary to draw the German reserves away from the French sections by attacking. And the final piece is that the Royal Navy are very worried indeed about German U-boats, German submarines, operating in the Atlantic and there's a great fear that the Germans might actually succeed in starving the British into submission by sinking the food uh, convoys coming across from North America. Uh, something which actually, you know, they came relatively close to achieving, in, of course, in both world wars. But all of these things together and the idea of attacking out of Ypres to deal a, a heavy blow against the Germans to clear the, the Belgian coast to capture the German, uh, what's thought to be German U-boat bases, this makes a lot of sense. And the British government at home has its worries about it, but eventually, slightly reluctantly, gives its approval, and so Haig carries out his campaign. Now, of course, we know that the Passchendaele Offensive did not achieve these aims, but it's far from clear at the time that these were impossible. In fact, there is some evidence from the German point of view that they were so worried by some of the successful British attacks in late September, early October, that they were preparing to abandon the position altogether. Then the weather broke and various other things happened and it didn't come true. So although Passchendaele has gone down in history as being Haig's most stupid blunder, the reality is a lot more subtle. Actually, there were some very good reasons for conducting the, the, the Passchendaele Offensive. Not to say that it couldn't have been fought more effectively, but I don't think we can rule the whole thing out as being stupid from the very beginning. Just, I just want to focus on, on a particular um, uh, day because the, the Irish attack on the 16th of August mm. um, at, 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 I'm not sure you pronounced that place, Langmark. 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 Yeah. Um, 
uh, I mean, th that was a particularly, I, I suppose, mm. sad failure or whatever. And I, I'm interested in it because a lot of the stuff that that we're getting through the newspapers kind of mm. focuses on that. And um, and, and and there is a. I, I, I suppose what's interesting as well is that there's a more honest kind of appraisal of, of, mm. of how rotten this uh, or any war is uh, than, mm. than you would have gotten maybe in previous years in the, in the, the newspapers if you can you know, imagine the time. But um, why did this attack on the 16th of August by the, I know it wasn't just the Irish, but <coughs> yeah, why sure. the Irish um, fail? Um, what, what went wrong? I, I know that Hubert Goff kind of got a bit mm. of yeah, yeah, for it yeah, as well, yeah. so what was going on there? Yeah. The Third Battle of Ypres is of course famously called Passchendaele because that was the the village that was the centre of the, of, the, of the major attacks at the end of the battle. But the earlier fighting in August actually was just as vicious and far less competently conducted. I think the, one of the problems was is that the general placed in charge of the attack at this stage of the battle was General Sir Hubert Gough. In fact, actually was. Uh, he was proud to call himself an Irishman, although he was born in London. Um, major figure in the, the current mutiny of, of 19, uh, 1914 and one of Douglas Haig's principal protégés and one of the reasons why Haig selected Goff for this operation, the beginning of the, the Third Battle of Ypres was that he believed that you needed what was described at the time as a thruster uh, a general who would be ruthless in driving his, his troops forward because he believed that it was possible to smash through the Germans uh, in, in, in a couple of days and break out into the, into the open country beyond. Now, historians today, and indeed many people at the time, would have said, actually, that's the wrong approach. You need a much more careful approach that was typified by General Plumer, who was the other commander in the Ypres salient, who would be very uh, careful and methodical in his battles, aiming to take one German trench at a time and then smash German positions and move forward in a step-by-step -step approach rather than trying to break through in one go. But it was Goth who was commanding at the beginning of this operation, and I'm afraid that by the middle of August, the initial impetus of his attacks had died down and really it, uh, it, the, the, the attack had petered out into a number of, of vicious small-scale attacks. In other words, it's a repeat of what was happening a year before on the Somme. And I think that the, uh, the 16th Irish Division's attack at Langemark uh, very much comes into that category. By that stage, British troops were very well trained. They were tactically far more sophisticated than they had been a year earlier. So, for example, they were making lots of use of the, of the light machine gun rather than simply advancing in long lines um, with, with rifles and bayonets. However, the, even the most sophisticated tactics, and they were sophisticated, broke down given the decision of the general above to try and throw everything through and break through and the way that the, 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 um, the battle had broken into a number of small, almost unconnected offences. And I'm afraid the, the Irish division took the, the bulk of that. <clears throat> what is interesting is that shortly after this event that Haig recognised he'd made a mistake in putting Goff in charge. He pushed him sideways, he brought in General Plumer, who then took a break, carefully planned the next stage of the offensive, and in fact in three battles uh, starting in, at the end of September 1917, there were three 
very, very successful attacks, which brought the Germans very, very close to defeat in the Ypres salient. But I'm afraid the Irish at Langemark caught the, 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 the tail end of the rather inept um, period of British generalship in, in Third Ypres. One of the kind of standard questions that I tend to ask people um, is, you know, where did they go? And, um, you know, my own father said that his father was bored, and that's where he went, mm-hmm. and I can imagine that. Um, and there's lots of different reasons. The, the, I suppose the, the political reason given is, is that John Redmond said it was okay to go and you should mm-hmm. go. But from my own point of view, I have to say I haven't come across an awful lot of people who kind of emphasise that very, very heavily. I, I don't know exactly what's going on there. But, but what do you think motivated soldiers to continue fighting beyond what would be considered now a breaking mm-hmm. point? Um, considering just just how horrific the conditions were, and um, and also just what was life like in the in the trenches when when there were no attacks being made. I think the things which kept the ordinary soldier in the line were relatively straightforward and very simple. I think probably the most important one is not wanting to let your mates down. This is something very different from fighting for king and empire or anything like that. This is about wanting to support and be supported by this group of comrades who are in many ways closer than their families because they were enduring all sorts of hardships and, and, and fear with these people. And so I think it's simply not wanting to look cowardly, not wanting to let them down. That was one of the key things which kept them going. Another factor was simple things like, well, one veteran of the 1418 war I spoke to a few years ago said it was tea and woodbines that won us the war. It was tea, cigarettes, ration of rum being rotated out of the line, which happened on a regular basis. You could go off and play football, sit and drink with your mates in the stamina, which is a sort of cross between a bar and a, and a, and a cafe, eat egg and chips, eat, drink what they all regard as being very watery French beer, these sorts of basic things which kept them going. There was also, uh, of course, discipline. Discipline in two senses, that they were part of the army, that they had been trained, they had been drilled to obey orders, to accept orders, and indeed to give orders, because, of course, many of these people would have had some sort of authority as, as an NCO, from anything from a lance corporal up, up, up to a sergeant major. But there was also the threat, or at least the fear of coercion. Now, actually, only about, say, only, something in the order of 350 British and Empire soldiers were shot in the First World War, most of them for things like desertion rather than for cowardice. And so the chances of actually being executed were pretty small. However, it was clearly in the back of some people's minds that if they did run away, that they might suffer that sort of very drastic penalty. But below that, there was also the threat of things like field punishment number one, which was being tied to a gun wheel for periods at a time, Field punishment number two, which was marching up and down at high speed on a parade ground um, with full pack rifle <clears throat> and your, your pack might be filled with bricks. It's all fairly unpleasant. And these are the sorts of things which, again, didn't happen. They didn't happen every day to everyone, but unless they did happen, and so there, there was a threat. Put all these things together, and I think you've got some idea of why people survived. Uh, now, not every historian would agree with this, but I would say actually being very aware of the political consequences was not something which actually motivated too many people. I mean, in a general sense, they might be fighting for king and empire, but most of them, you know, it was tea and wood buyers and not wanting to let your, your mates down, which kept them going. 
and, and, and I think it's easy to forget that the average British soldier did not spend most of his time in battle or even in the front line. Actually, an ordinary British infantry soldier, uh, British and Empire infantry soldier, might spend perhaps four days in the front line, four days in the support line, which is a bit behind that, and, and, and four days in, 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 in the reserve line. Uh, behind that and then they would be taken off into rear areas for what's what was euphemistically known as rest in fact a lot of it was involving hard manual labor humping and dumping lots of training and so i think if everybody had been in the front line all the time being sniped and bombed and shelled i don't think anybody's morale could survive for any period of time but that didn't happen uh, most of the time, these people were not in in the front line and certainly not in the battle. Big battles like the Somme or Passchendaele were a relatively rare uh, occurrence in the average soldier's experience. But I suppose it's, it's not just the, the fact that there's uh, a bunch of Germans in the uh, trenches who want to kill you. I mean, the, the actual conditions of the trenches mm. themselves, I mean, yeah. they were essentially open sewers or something. Yeah. It was horrible. I mean, could you give us an idea of, yeah. of, of just how bad living conditions were to be? Well, tre- tre- trench life was always hard, but actually it was worse at the beginning of the war when trenches were very unsophisticated. They were just, you know, places, a few shell holes had been sort of joined together with a few strands of barbed wire. It was always hard in winter because you were effectively sleeping rough uh, at other times you know maybe it wasn't so bad but there are always things like like rats everybody had body lice it was cold it was wet lack of sleep uh, during the day on the whole the trenches were not if, if you look from outside you actually wouldn't you wouldn't actually see there was very much going on during the day for obvious reasons people kept their head down at night however the trenches would become alive people would go out into no man's land they would repair wire they would dig new saps wherever it happens to be but all of this took a real toll on on on, on the nerves of the soldiers they were deprived of sleep they were tired they were cold they may not actually be hungry because rations weren't too bad and there were plenty of, sort of extras available being sent from people at home but it was a pretty miserable experience um, which is one reason why when they were taken back behind the lines, then they did have the chance to be fed on egg and chips and so on and so forth. Um, if they had spent all their time under those conditions in, in the front line, I don't think anybody's morale would have survived. But actually, it, was, it, it wasn't quite like that. Um, I just want to move on to another um, uh, uh, issue which uh, um, affected um, Ireland uh, uh, during the war, obviously the conscription crisis in 1918. Mm, mm. Um, uh, it wouldn't be the first time the British government gave Republicans a, a present because it did an awful lot to, to, to make the Britain even more unpopular. But um, why did the government try to yeah. try to force this issue through? Because I suppose what's kind of when we read it, history books in school in Ireland, what, what kind of is never said is that, is that the, the British army is basically running out of men. Isn't yeah, it? That's that's right. the, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. By 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 1918 the. British Empire had taken enormous casualties and the army was effectively running out of men. At the beginning of the war, what they should have done, but didn't, was sit down and work out what Britain's and the Empire's manpower resources were and worked out from that the number of divisions that could be raised and sustained. They didn't. That raised a large number and they simply couldn't keep them all up to strength. The profligate policies 
by which I mean lots and lots of people were being killed on the Western Front, meant that by the end of 1918, as Haig was being warned by Winston Churchill, the uh, the Minister uh, of Munitions, that Britain could simply no longer sustain an army of the size that it had up to that point. So if the war had gone on into 1919, Haig's army of roughly 60 divisions would have been halved to around 32. Now, against this background, the the fact that conscription had not been applied in Ireland um, led to the obvious but in retrospect, and indeed at the time, politically wrong decision, actually to try to apply or suggest to suggest applying conscription to Ireland. And this is, I think, gets the heart of the sort of ambiguity of the British-Irish relationship in the First World War, because Ireland in many ways was simply another part of Britain, but in many ways it wasn't. And whereas at the very beginning of the war, actually volunteering from Ireland had been pretty good. I mean, something like 200,000 uh, Irishmen served in the British forces between 1914 and 1918. After the Easter uprising, that the supplies of soldiers, obviously from the south, had, had largely dried up and so they had enormous problems keeping Irish divisions up to strength. And so, not for the first time, uh, a British... British politician took a decision involving Ireland which did not take account of local circumstances and politically you know it was a huge mistake if the object was to keep Ireland as part of the United Kingdom within the empire okay um just uh, finally um uh, just another question I suppose about Ireland again um I just, just I'll throw it out to you, and you can you can make what you will of it. And um, given that the British government by 1916 was encouraging subject people in Turkey and Austria-Hungary to rise up, and that was they were all at it. Really, was the Germans were at it as well. Was there any sense of irony amongst British military and political leaders that, that the same problem turned up in Ireland? Yeah. And the, the reason I asked that, I suppose, is because. It, 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 sometimes you kind of read stuff and you kind of go, you, there's a real sense of shock uh, mm. amongst uh, um, uh, British officers maybe that you know why is this happening I mean mm. and I always kind of think well you know you should have got the Polish to do it so <laughs> you know but could, 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 have you got yeah. any perspective yeah, on that yeah. or, or was there a sense of irony yeah well the sense is going back to what I said earlier about there being this great ambiguity about the relationship between Britain and Ireland at this period so, for example, at the time of the Easter Rebellion, there was enormous shock among many Irish soldiers and Irish officers serving in the British Army on the Western Front because these people were seen as being, you know, letting the side down. Here they are fighting for the rights of small nations, such as Belgium, and yet this, this rebellion has exploded uh, in the Irish homeland. And yet... The fact that fighting for the rights of small nations might also legitimately include Ireland was not something a lot of people on the British side, or perhaps I should say the Anglo-Irish side, actually recognised. And there was this tendency to see Ireland as being, you know, part of Britain, except when it isn't. And I guess this is at the, 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 the same dilemma is at the sense is is at the centre of any struggle involving basically an imperial power 
which claims to be fighting for freedom. I think it's the same is the true of the, of the Second World War as well. I mean, uh, in that sense, the British Empire in both world wars were, th- were, were fighting, I think, you know, for democracy and freedom and against tyranny. And yet it's a huge irony that in both cases, the Allied war effort included large numbers of people who did not have political freedom. Not just the Irish, who of course at least did have representation in Westminster, but troops from India, from Africa. The French were deploying troops from from Senegal and from French Indochina. Now none of these people had a vote or a say in whether their their country went to war. Yet they found themselves at war as part of an empire. And yet, is the world a better place because the Kaiser was defeated in 1918 and Hitler in 1945? Yes, I think it is. But it's one of these great ambiguities. These freedoms were bought by empires which included subject people. Um, that's, I, I just want more if that's okay, Gary. I, I just, I just want to uh, put to you, um, because I mentioned about I didn't write anything here about 100 days, um, and, and it's something in, in your book which you mm. make the point that it's probably, that it's, it, it, it's certainly nowhere near as famous as almost any one of a litany of battles in the First World War, and yet the sequence of, of, of victories in, in, in the last 100 days of the war mm. are unparalleled. And I suppose what I wanted to say, and probably as I said to you before, the reason I wanted to talk to you about it is because I'm kind of, I've always been myself slightly uncomfortable with the idea of the, the lions and donkeys analogy because I think it, it makes us all just kind of into kind of hapless victims, mm-hmm. um, and um, which might well have been the case in certain extents. But, but I just kind of want to pin down the fact that these were people who, who, who were faced with an unprecedented situation and adapted to it quite well and eventually mm-hmm. won, a, won, a, won a victory mm-hmm. against, a, against a country that, that knows a thing or two about fighting. So it was, it was, yeah, it, yeah. it's a considerable achievement for. Yeah. Uh, the, the relatives of people that I spoke to at home and sure, people hearing yeah, yeah. and elsewhere. Could you kind of really put a yeah. on that? Yeah. I think one of the saddest historical legacies of the First World War is the common idea that the soldiers of the First World War fought and died for nothing. I, I don't think that's true in either case. Firstly, I think that Imperial Germany was a terrible threat and I think that its defeat by the Western liberal democracies was a good thing inverted commas and the second thing is that these people were not simply hapless victims that they were part of an army which learned from the terrible battles like Luce, like Gallipoli like the Somme and actually turned itself into a highly effective army which took the lead in defeating the German army in 1918 now these people I think knew that actually they were developing a degree of competence and actually were proud of it. I think it's quite remarkable that the the British forces were the one major army in the First World War which didn't suffer a major mutiny while the war was going on. There were a few smaller ones, and certainly once the war was over, most people simply wanted to go home. But actually, the army held together and was cohesive throughout the fighting. And if you look at the army of 1918, the army which actually won the war, it's a very, very different force indeed from that that had fought at Guillemont Ginchy, for example, in September 1916. The army was technologically very advanced. It was using the latest technology, whether it's tanks, aircraft, chemical weapons, radios. It had developed 
tactics which were far more efficient than those of the Germans they were fighting against. Its generals had learnt the hard way how to fight competent, what we, what we today called, called operational level engagements. And the result was that in the 100 days of battle, so-called, starting with the Battle of Amiens, 8th of August 1918, through to the armistice on the 11th of November 1918, that the British Expeditionary Force, including Canadian, Australian, South African, New Zealand, and of course Irish troops, actually led the way in defeating the German army and won the greatest series of victories in British military history. I think it's a great shame that, that achievement, for it was an achievement it was, a terrific achievement, has largely been forgotten from popular memory. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.